Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, and monthly co-host Kat Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. And this episode is host is sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And you can find Ginger at tarotbyginger.com. And I highly recommend her. If you're looking to make any type of major decisions in your life, go to her website and get a reading. And she can tell you what energies are surrounding you or this situation. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Rizwan Verk. And he is the author of The Simulated Multiverse. And if you want to read a book that is going to twist your mind into a knot, this is the book. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. So, you, you know, your book is fascinating. Like I was talking to you before we got on. I've been reading it. And, um, you know, one of the things that we have in common, too, is we have a mutual friend, Tessa Dick. I've had her oh, on, and yeah. um, and a lot of your work has been, you know, you use a lot of Philip K. Dick's um, stories and scenarios to talk about some of your simulated universe theory. Um, so you want to talk a little bit about, like, how that came about? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I was uh, very much inspired by my conversation with Tessa to look deeper at uh, Philip K. Dick's um, you know, philosophy, not just his science fiction, but his thoughts on life. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I had written a previous book called The Simulation Hypothesis, which was, you know, about this idea that we live in a simulation. And, uh, you know, there was a famous quote from, um, from Philip that was in 1977 in Metz, France. And, you know, that quote has been used a lot online. And I've seen video clips. I had seen video clips of it. And in it, he said, we are living in a computer program reality, and the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed, some alteration in our reality occurs. Now, at the time, I just thought it'd be fun to, you know, talk to Tessa, find out what he really thought about a virtual reality. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when, when I talked to her, I found out that, you know, there was a, a lot of, uh, that Phil had put in a lot of thought into this whole view of time and space. And so that, you know, took me further into reading that entire speech and watching the video of the speech eventually. And turns out that famous line wasn't in the written version of the speech. So he had kind of created it uh, or, or ad-libbed it. I mean, I think he had written it on his notes because he was reading from his notes when he was giving the speech. But the basic idea, you know, was, uh, was much more about timelines than it was about the simulation, although that was definitely a part of it. So I feel like most people who repeat that quote my, including myself, when I first uh-huh. you know, had heard it, had had missed like half the point. We got half the point, which was about the computer simulation. And, you know, she told me that he had come to believe that his best-selling novel at the time, and, and the mo- one he got the most accolades for, was The Man in the High Castle, uh-huh. which came out in 1960. And, uh, of course, there was the Amazon uh, series yeah. recently. So most people know it, you know, from the series. But it was an alternate timeline where Germany and Japan had won World War II. Now, of course, he wrote it in the 50s, so World War II wasn't that long ago. It was actually kind of recent history. 
uh, at that time. But, you know, it was a fascinating case study in what America might look like. And what she told me, and this was the first time I'd heard this, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> uh, <clears throat> so uh, she told me that he actually came to believe that that was a real timeline that had existed mm-hmm. and that it had been unwound by the simulators. I have to just take a drink here. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we may have to unwind that. And <laughs> uh, so, you know, he, he came to believe that this wasn't just some fictional world that he had mm-hmm. made up and that eventually he said that he had an anamnesis, which is a Greek word. You know, we all know amnesia, which is you know, not remembering or forgetfulness and, and, the term anamnesis literally translates to a loss of forgetfulness, right? And so, you know, he said he remembered that entire timeline coming back to him. And until then, he had been obsessed with visions of a dark and fascist America in different timelines. And after that, the memories came flooding back into him. In fact, he was working on a sequel, Tessa told me, to The Man in the High Castle. And it was pretty disturbing. But after that, he just didn't feel the need to go back and revisit those memories as much. Uh, and, you know, this actually started in a, in a much more modest way where uh, he was in the, he went to the bathroom and I don't know if Tessa told this story to you, no. but it's, it's sort of known out there now, but uh, he went in and he tried to, you know, to the bathroom and he tried to turn on the light like oh, he'd yeah, done yeah, yeah. hundreds of times. And he thought it was a light switch, mm-hmm. a light chain. Cause you know, he had pulled it many, this is back in the sixties. Uh, but turns out it was a light switch and he started to wonder what the heck is going on here. I've been here hundreds of times and now that my me- either my memory has changed or that thing has changed. And that kind of led him into this idea. Well, what if there were people making small little changes? They would freeze time. They would make small changes and then they would see what would happen and they could observe us. And so he came up with the idea for his short story, uh, The Adjustment Team which was eventually made into a movie called The Adjustment Bureau with uh, Matt Damon and Emily Blunt. I think it was in like 2010 or 2012, uh, which was a great movie, but it was pretty different from the book. But that was where that the origin of that idea came about. And so if you listen to more of his speech, after saying, you know, some alteration in our reality occurred, he says you would have a sense of deja vu, as if you were hearing the same words again if you were saying the same words again and experiencing the same events again and again. And so he had come up with this idea of what he called orthogonal time. And the idea was that there was someone or something or some entities that were outside of linear time Mm -hmm. and that we were primarily stuck in linear time, so we're only seeing what's happening. But these entities, which he called the the programmer and the counter-programmer, which obviously had some some religious overtones there, (laughs) but tied to his metaphor of the computer... And he may have been one of the first to take this idea seriously. I mean, there are other science fiction writers who've written about it, but he was giving this speech not as science fiction, Mm -hmm. but as a kind of philosophy. And he said, all the timelines are laid out next to each other, like suits in, in a closet. And they can like choose one and go into and change things or choose the other. And they were kind of like making changes and seeing how that affected things. And, you know, the, the goal was, uh, evidently to come up with a better timeline. And so the timeline where Germany and Japan won the war never ended well. And so for whatever reason, whoever was running the simulation decided to rewind 
uh-huh. the timeline and we run it. And now this is where it gets even stranger. So in my interview with Tessa, you know, <laughs> I asked her, did he know who these people were, these entities? Are they uh-huh. aliens? Were they, you know, uh, just, you know, gods? And she said, well, he, he's had conversations with them. I was like, well, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. And, and she said, you know, he said he was communicating with them and that they were telling him uh, that they had tweaked other things. Like, for example, the assassination of JFK, which happened in our timeline, at least, in Dallas, mm-hmm. um, in, was it 1963? And they said that they had changed it so he didn't get assassinated in Dallas. But then he would end up getting assassinated in Orlando or some other city. Right. Uh, or it would lead to a very bad outcome where there was nuclear war. Uh, and so they rewound those timelines and let this particular timeline proceed. Now, she didn't say whether the Dallas was the original timeline or one of many, but it was back to this idea that, you know, uh, people might be able to remember a different alternate present. And, you know, he knew he sounded a little strange. And so, you know, if you look at the video, you'll see like close-ups of the audience when he's <laughs> talking about this, including his friend. I forget her name now, but she was at the conference with him, just kind of like looking like, <laughs> with her mouth open, <laughs> kind of uh, open mouth. And, and, and at another point in the speech, he said, all you would need to do is find a group of people that, like him, remembered an alternate present or an alternate timeline. And that's what gave me the clue that, well, you know, this might tie to this phenomena of the Mandela effect, uh, people who remember something different. So anyway, that's part of the story with Philip K. Dick. Uh, and with Tessa, and, and it was actually a key part of my research. Uh, not so much for the first book. For the first book, I did mm-hmm. it just because I thought it'd be fun to have, you know, get her take on it. But then that led me down a whole rabbit hole around this idea of the multiverse and multiple timelines. It's interesting because one of the things that I first popped in my head when I started reading it, reading about Philip and how you were using him, you know, I think back to the other great thinkers that we've had, like, Tesla, Einstein, and these people would always say, like, the inspiration didn't necessarily come from them. It came to them in a dream. They were speaking with other entities. You know, things that people would find unbelievable. It's easier for us to think, okay, this person is just a genius. They're thinking, you know, and we stop at that. But these people who've really changed our world, a lot of times they're not taking credit for their own ideas. They're saying like, no, it just came to me from somewhere else. And if ideas are coming to these people from somewhere else, is that somewhere else just a big hard drive that's out there with information stored on it and they're accessing that hard drive? And then the next question that I usually think of is, okay, we're looking at this in terms of electronic technology that you and I understand. However, most likely, whatever's causing this reality to happen is something that you and I are probably not able to understand, I assume, and that it might be even possibly organic in nature. What do you think? Yeah, well, so on the first question, you know, I, I think that's true that a lot of ideas do come uh, from outside of the person and whether it's, you know, a lot of writers, you know, sometimes you feel like you've been called <laughs> mm-hmm. to write something. And, and there's a saying in some of the Native American traditions that the story stalks the storyteller other rather than the other way around. So it's almost like 
the story is out there and it's waiting for the right people to basically catch hold of it. And, you know, we've seen the phenomenon where multiple people end up with a similar discovery, but in different parts of the world, or you have similar stories from ideas that are in the air. And, you know, I mean, Tesla himself seemed to think he was in communication with aliens and, yeah. you know, the, the origins of the, the U.S. and Soviet space program include people who were, you know, believed they were in touch with other entities, whether those were extraterrestrial or extra dimensional or, or some other type of entity. And of course, in the religious traditions, you know, people feel they got revelations from outside. And, you know, I, I like to say, well, yeah, that is outside the simulation, outside the rendered world, right? What we see mm -hmm. is the rendered world, just like if you were inside a video game. You know, you can see the character, your avatar, and you can see what's around them, and you can only see part of that world at any given time. Uh, but there's also other information that shows up on the screen that's not in the rendered world. I mean, you can have messages from your friends, mm -hmm. right? You can have messages from the, the game server that's sending you things. There are agents that, you know, might say, okay, the guild needs to get over here at this mm -hmm. period of time. It's like coordination that happens, you know, outside. And so, you know, I think part of these types of, of hunches, intuitions, deja vu, I, mean, I like to call them clues, right? And it turns out Philip K. Dick used a similar term in his speech where he said, you know, these are clues that something is different or that something has changed. And I, and I like to say they're clues on our personal treasure hunt. I actually wrote a book called Treasure Hunt years ago that was about synchronicity and mm -hmm. dreams and messages that come through our dreams and using those in our careers and whatever, you know, the careers or work we were meant to do. Uh, so, so I do think there is an element of that and, and it's coming from outside. Now, to your second question, which I think is a deeper, you know, is a deep question in many ways, which is, could it be something more advanced? And I say, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, when I say we're living in a simulation, I don't mean, you know, it's a 485, 486 or, you know, a <laughs> processor that's running an Intel based machine in the same way that, you know, today's uh, computers and graphics are, are significantly more advanced than what we had in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. When I learned computer programming as a teenager and, and I learned to, you know, make games and, you know, back then, you know, the games were pretty simple. It was like Pac-Man and <laughs> Space Invaders and, games like that and if you ask someone could you render a full 3d world like world of warcraft right and you know as you moved around you could show exactly what was happening and you could do it with millions of players online and the answer was no you know we don't have the computing power to do it but more important than the power we didn't have all the right algorithms for compression and trying to figure out how to do things and so you know when i talk about it being a computer system uh it's the latest metaphor Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, the ancient going back to the, the ancient Hindus and the Vedas, you know, they use different metaphors. They use the metaphor of Maya or an illusion or the Leela, which is uh, a play, which could be as in a play like a game mm -hmm. or a play like a stage play uh, of the gods. And, you know, that metaphor has carried through, uh, you know, to Shakespeare, even in. 500 plus years ago yeah. uh, where he talked about, you know, all the world's a stage and the men and women are merely players. But as the technology has advanced, we've come up with newer metaphors. You know, one of my uh, areas that I've studied is uh, uh, Yogananda, who was one of the first I kind love of, uh, <laughs> yeah, who was one of the first Indian gurus to yes. really make an impact here in the West. And he lived here for many years, came over a hundred years ago 
1920, and he wrote a book called Autobiography of a Yogi, which was immensely popular. And, you know, back then, the new technology was movies, right? And mm -hmm. so he would use the metaphor of the film. It's like a film projector. And that was a new metaphor at the time. That was not one that other <laughs> spiritual teachers were using to describe reality. And he came up with it because, you know, he was looking at, he, even back in India, a few years before he came here, he was watching, you know, they used to show the news at the theater. They'd have the newsreels before the movie. And he was watching newsreels of World War One, and he saw all the suffering, which, I mean, that was the first mechanized war, right? So you had machine guns. Mm -hmm. and, so, I mean, the amount of deaths was just staggering compared to what we had in previous wars just because of the automation and the technology. And so he remembered being deeply affected by seeing all these people dying and all the suffering it must be causing, not just to the soldiers, but to their families. And so he asked his guru, like, you know, why would God allow this? Like, this is such... And, and, and the answer that he got was that, well, if you think of it like a movie, like a film projector, which is exactly what he was, how he was seeing the suffering, he was seeing it in the newsreel. He said, well, the actors, are they really suffering? That is part of the, the, the play, if you will, that they, that they were working on. And, you know, those are the good parts that, that, that that's what actors want to do. But the actors can go on and still do other parts as well. And so that metaphor was the new technology a hundred years ago. I believe if Yogananda were alive today, right. actually my next book is uh, called Wisdom of a Yogi, uh, Lessons for Modern Seekers from Yogananda's Autobiography, which uh, uh, it's a whole other story about synchronicity, uh -huh. but it was being published by HarperCollins in India. And they came to me and said, would you write this using your simulation ideas because <laughs> we need a new metaphor, right? So mm -hmm. I believe if, if Yogananda were arrived to, alive today, he'd say, it's like a film, but it's an interactive film where everybody has their own script, but they can change the script so they can, you know, play, play together. Well, what does that sound like? It sounds like an interactive video game. And so I think it's the latest metaphor, but in the same way that our games today are well advanced from the games of the 80s and our computers are, are advanced, the kind of simulations we're talking about are much more advanced than what we have today. And we can talk more about this, but they, you know, I, I tend to believe they might be more along the lines of quantum computers, mm -hmm. which are very different from the computers that, as we think of them today. Right. You know, is Yoga Nanda too, when Steve Jobs used to read auto, about autobiography of, of a yogi once a year. Like, 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 yeah. loyally, like, 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 he would do that all the time. And he was yeah, also well, another one, too, who would go off and meditate for a couple of weeks and then come back with new ideas. Yeah. I mean, he was a big believer that, you know, meditation and being silent was a way to open up to these inspirations and ideas. And, you know, when he died, that was the only book on his iPad. <laughs> and then at his funeral, this is a story that was told by uh, the guy who runs Salesforce.com, uh, Mark Benioff. And he said that they, they, Jobs had arranged for a little a wooden box to be given to all the attendees at, at Steve Jobs' funeral. And in that was a copy of Autobiography of a Yogi. So, you know, not only did he read it, but it was one of those books that's been passed around. It's almost a passport. Uh, now, that said, it tends to be more well-known amongst our generation and my generation and even those older than me because in the 60s and 70s was when it really became popular during mm -hmm. the counterculture. And so, you know, a lot of younger people today may not know who Yogananda is. And, you know, obviously today you got yeah, yoga on every street corner. So it's a very different, it's in a very different world today. But, you know, some of those ideas and lessons, I think, and even strange stories and miracles still apply. I, I was, uh, I uh, uh, presented at a parapsychology conference, uh, the Parapsychology Association in this 
last weekend, and it was talking about how all these un unexplained phenomena could be, be explained if we were living inside a simulation. So it's a different model for how these things could actually happen because the gap between science seems to be moving the other way towards more materialism and people who've experienced these things and who investigate these things and like your show and other places, you know, it, it's becoming more and more apparent that there's more of this stuff, weird stuff going on all the time, but there's mm -hmm. this big gap between these two worlds. And that was part of the reason why I got into writing these books was to try to bring these two. Yeah. The gap in. is closing now, I think. Yeah, hopefully it will. It will close because, more. Because but... I even find myself now getting more and more guests from universities and stuff like that that are really seriously investigating unexplained phenomena. Like, like it's no more – it's not being disregarded as an anomaly anymore because it happens yeah, too often. Just like when in your book, you know, you talk about the Mandela effect and – that's one of the most common things that, that people have experienced. You know, like we, everybody thought he died and he wasn't dead or things like the Kit Kat bar, whether it had to dash or didn't have to dash. Jiff or Jiffy. Right. Like, like yeah. how did these things change? How do so many people have memories of these things and things are now different? Like what happened there? Did, did somebody change the simulation? Or do we cross over into another timeline? Yeah, well, that's a, a great question. And I think, you know, that's what got me kind of back down the rabbit hole of simulation theory was, you know, I actually met with a, a friend of mine who was also a grad of MIT. And usually, you know, with that crowd, they don't talk to me about, you know, mm -hmm. unexplained phenomenon, right? <laughs> I mean, usually I'm talking about unexplained phenomenon with other people, although UFOs are now kind of crossing that subject where they're taking it more seriously because of the recent you know pentagon uh investigations uh, and i was just at the galileo project uh, we had an annual meeting in, in at harvard and so you know at least more people in academia are curious so this was a another graduate from mit worked for google he came out to google's headquarters in mountain view and i i happened to be living close by so we had coffee and he said, oh, have you heard of the Mandela effect? I said, yeah, I've heard of it. But, you know, I didn't think too much about it. Maybe people are just misremembering, which is kind of the, the standard, right? Mm -hmm. The standard mainstream scientific explanation is, oh, they're just, you know, misremembering. That's all. And he said, well, the simulation is a pretty good explanation for that. And so then I started to say, oh, let me look you back into it. He said, be careful. It's a bit of a rabbit hole. And, <laughs> and I ended up writing this whole book. <laughs> on the multiverse idea, because that is what, you know, that conversation and, and my thinking back to my conversation with Tessa really got me thinking about, because it's not just one alternate timeline, right? Uh, which is what some people think might be happening uh, with the Mandela effect. So, you know, we've talked about Mandela dying in prison in the 80s is what some people remember versus in our timeline. But turns out there are many of these effects where a subset of people remember. And they're not all small. Like I remember thinking, yeah, they're small little little things like a spelling, a letter here, a letter there. Some of them are about major events that have happened. Uh, another one was the, uh, the the guy who stood in front of the tank, mm -hmm. the young man in, in Tiananmen Square. which I thought he got run over. Life. Yeah, so many people remember him getting run over. And not just that, but they remember talking about it yes. with other people. I so, do too. Right. So you remember that, right? And even with Nelson, with Mandela, they remember his funeral, yes. remember, you know, who spoke at the funeral. They remember his wife, Winnie, taking over leadership of the African National Congress. And so they aren't just like these little things that are just dismissible. 
Um, and, and so then I realized, well, Philip K., what Philip K. Dick was talking about, maybe the best explanation, because if you take all of these Mandela effects, you know, there's some where, okay, you remember Tank Boy getting run over, but you don't remember Mandela dying in prison. Somebody else might remember Mandela dying in prison, might remember Kit Kat a certain way. Somebody else might remember, you know, the Empire Strikes Back one way, but Mandela dying another way, but Tank Boy another way. So what you get is this permutation, this graph of different possibilities. And it kind of shows you that it may not just be one alternate timeline that's being implied by these Mandela effects. Hmm. They're almost like, you know, they split off in two. It's like those graphs. And I have a bunch of these diagrams in, in the simulated multiverse. I call these multiverse graphs. And so if you think about it, if you make a choice of two, you get, you know, two nodes. And then like the old commercial, they tell two friends mm -hmm. and they tell two friends. But it becomes what we call a directed graph yeah, like a tree. In, in mathematics and computer science. And it becomes in computer science, a search space, mm -hmm. right? It's a graph that we can search. And, and so Philip K. Dick's ideas were exactly about if you change a variable here, what happens? And then you change a variable here, what happens? And you get these different timelines that are run. And turns out that's how we run simulations. Like if we're running a simulation of the weather, we will change different initial variables and we will rerun it again. Or, you know, the population of fruit flies, right? We'll change the initial variables and we'll change it. And what chaos theory is all about, uh, the, the uh, science of complexity, is that small changes to initial conditions actually give us very big different results, you know, down the road because they cascade over time. And, and so, you know, that's called sensitivity to initial conditions. But that's why we have to try different things. And so why do we run those simulations? We run them, one, to see what's likely to happen, like with mm. the weather or maybe a pandemic or some other thing where we can put some numbers, you know, on, on them or uh, planetary, you know, planetary revolution or a comet. Where is it going to end up? Or we try to find the most optimal outcome. We say, okay, what would lead to the best outcome? And that was closer to, you know, Philip K. Dick's idea of, the programmer and counter-programmer changing things along the way uh, so they could see what kind of outcome they got from it. It's like two gods playing a game, just like in the Bible. Yeah, and, and in fact, you know, the, some of the most compelling Mandela effects are related to the Bible mm -hmm. uh, and to Scripture in general. Yeah, where... you mentioned one that, that I, I got me with, the one with the laying down with the lamb. Yeah, the lion and the lamb, right? We've yeah. all heard that. And many people remember it to the point where there are like, you know, like little framed quotes <laughs> with mm -hmm. a picture of a lion and a lamb. But if you go to the King James Bible today, it says the wolf and the lamb, right? It doesn't say the lion and the lamb. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, uh, what's going on here? And it, scripture is an example of, of what I like to call proximity and significance, right? So if, if something is more significant to you or you're closer to it, you're less likely to get it wrong, right? And another one is the Bernstein Bears, mm -hmm. which is now the Bernstein Bears. And, okay, I'm not Jewish, but there are many people who are who remember asking adults, why are these bears Jewish, right? <laughs> and having a conversation about the spelling of the bears. So it was closer to them. Similarly, you know, there are people who report Mandela effects where the Reverend Billy Graham died many years before mm -hmm. he did. And they, they're from evangelical Christian families where they remember getting the magazine with his picture on the cover because he had died. They remember Bill Clinton speaking at his funeral. Again, to them, that's very significant. Like, I wouldn't know if Reverend Billy Graham died in 2013 or 2011 or 2015. I'd have no idea, but they would, they would have the idea. I might know if, you know, uh, Princess Leia were still alive, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> uh, and so whatever the significance is to us personally, uh, and with the scripture in particular, you know, the explanation, 
that is given is, well, someone is messing with scripture and why would they do that? And so I went down this rabbit hole a little bit. And, you know, some of them you can ascribe to different translations of the same yes. old passages. But there are people who say it's their physical copy of the uh, King James Bible that they've had since they were a kid. That is different. And so I wondered if this was happening in other, you know, religions with other scriptures. And I looked into uh, Islam in particular, which has the Quran. And I found this Sufi uh, sheikh. Uh, and Sufi is kind of the, the mystical uh, order yeah. within, within Islam. Kind of like the Kabbalah like and, and Judaism and some of the Gnostics. Uh, and so, you know, he said that the reason, and I knew this from being a kid, you know, growing up in that religion, that they would memorize like the Quran. It's a yeah. pretty big book, word for word in Arabic. And I remember thinking, why would you memorize the book? <laughs> we have the book. You know, we've got computers. Why would you be memorizing this thing word for word? Uh, and he said one of the explanations was that in, in Islamic traditions, there are, uh, there are these other entities called jinns. And we know of them as genies, right? From mm-hmm. Aladdin and elsewhere. And that's based on the Middle Eastern concept of, of jinns, which goes back, you know, to pre-Islamic times. So it, it's just sort of a, a cultural thing, but that they don't live in time the same way that we do and that they are allowed to go back and change things in the past and in the physical world. Uh, and, but they are not allowed to change our memory. You know, and this was fascinating to me that there was a similar idea of people. I mean, they, they didn't necessarily say it's Satan doing it, which the shaitan, it's this, you know, the same word <laughs> pretty much that comes. They were saying it's these entities who are allowed to do this. And mm-hmm. that just reminded me so much uh, of Philip K. Dick. And, you know, I've always been intrigued by this idea of these other beings. Speaking of Yogananda, one of the, the, the most famous stories in his book was of this uh, jinn called Hazrat, and this guy would get the jinn to take like physical objects, like a piece of gold, and it would disappear. And then it would reappear wherever he told the jinn to take it to <laughs> and mm-hmm. drop it off. And so you'd hear these stories of this physical manipulation going on. Uh, but, but I thought that was kind of fascinating uh, in terms of, you know, talking about this idea that thing, the past may not be what we think it is. Right. And that's what the Mandela effect is kind of evidence for if scientists would take it seriously. And it turns out, Within quantum mechanics, there's this whole idea of the metaverse, uh, sorry, the multiverse. <laughs> the metaverse is the topic that we're talking about today, which is virtual mm-hmm. reality. It's all kind of related. Right. That, that's going to be my next question anyways, how all this ties into like quantum physics and string theory. Yeah, well, it ties in, you know, interestingly enough, because, you know, the two most popular interpretations of, of quantum mechanics, first of all, we've all heard that quantum Mechanics is strange, right? And, you know, Richard Feynman, Nobel Prize winning physicist said nobody really understands it. And and Niels Bohr, who's one of the founders of quantum physics, you know, said that uh, if you aren't shocked by what it's telling us, (laughs) you haven't really understood it. And, and, you know, the best way to explain it is with the example of Schrodinger's cat, I found, Mm -hmm. where we've all heard of it, but it's the cat is in a box with some poison that has a 50% chance of being released in an hour. So after an hour, there's a 50% chance the cat is alive, and there's a 50% chance the cat is dead. Now, common sense tells us the cat must be one or the other, right? We just don't know because we haven't looked in the box. And so what the observer effect is saying, once we look in the box, you know, one of those possibilities, if you consider that a possibility wave, uh, collapses and into one reality, and that's the reality we see. But it's telling us that that doesn't happen until the observation or the measurement is made. So until then, the cat is in what's called a state of superposition. The cat is alive and dead at the same time. Uh, and that's just very strange. Right? How could it be both? 
right? And so some physicists don't like this idea that you need an observer to be, you know, to look. <laughs> like right. that's very different than uh, the materialist paradigm. And so the other uh, very popular interpretation is the multiverse interpretation, which is that there are two worlds splitting off. In one of them, the cat is alive, and in the other one, the cat is dead. And so if we see the cat alive, that just happens to be the multiverse uh, that we're in, kind of like the you know Doctor Strange and the multiverse of madness, yeah. that there's other multiverses out there. Now, that got me thinking, well, you know, they're sort of implying that there are multiple, um, you know, futures at any given point. So that's why with every given decision, every quantum decision, you kind of break off into the same kind of multiverse graph that I've been talking about. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, within the superhero world, there's a lot of science fiction now that uses this idea of the multiverse. So yes. it's become something that, you know, we understand. I like to say it's past the 10 year old task. Mm -hmm. right? If you go back a hundred years, the idea that there are other planets, that past the 10-year-old. Even 10-year-olds could understand if you said, oh, the aliens come from Mars or Superman comes from Krypton. That's why he has powers, right? They would understand, mm -hmm. oh, Krypton's another planet around another sun. There was enough knowledge of the universe that it had gone throughout society. And today, this concept of the multiverse has now kind of gone out in society to the point where my 10-year-old nephews, they're lecturing me about the multiverse. From, <laughs> yeah. you know, because the Flash in this universe is different than the Flash in Earth 33 versus Earth you know, 45 and Superman is like different actors in different, uh, <laughs> different multiverses. <laughs> but, but what, now what most physicists don't talk about though, this is where it gets really, really strange is that not only is quantum mechanics telling us there may be different multiple futures and different presents that exist, but there are different pasts. And, and, and that's really kind of weird. Uh, and there's a, an experiment called the delayed choice experiment. Uh, and there's a version of it called Cosmic Delayed Choice by John Wheeler, who was at Princeton and was one of the famous uh, physicists of the 20th century. And he came up with this, this, this experiment that if there was, a, say, a quasar was like a billion light years away from us, that means the light from the quasar left a billion years ago and we're just seeing it now. Mm -hmm. He said, suppose there was something in the middle, like a million light years away from us, like a big black hole or a galaxy, and the light has to go either to the left or to the right. And it turns out we can set up telescopes on Earth to, you know, that can only see the light that went left or the light that went right. And so we can tell what choice was made. But because that's a million light years away, that choice would have had to have been made a million years ago, right? And we're getting back to maybe the age of the dinosaurs or mm -hmm. maybe a little bit later than that, but certainly, you know, pre, uh, depending on your, your, your ideas of history, pre-civilization or at least the current civilization, um, I don't even know if Homo sapiens sapiens was around 100 uh, million years ago. So that decision would have had to have been made then. But what the quantum delayed choice experiment is telling us, or say the cosmic quantum delayed choice experiment, is telling us that uh, turns out that decision isn't made until we measure the light now. And so that light could have gone left or right. So it's, it's also in a state of superposition. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like there are these two different pasts every time we make an observation. Okay, now that's really weird. So I've been talking about a graph that goes, you know, branching out upwards, but now it's also branching right. backwards to, to the point where every decision has two different pasts. And so what the past is, is just a path through this graph. Uh, and the present happens to be just one node in this graph. And, and so, you know, that's showing us that time is not what we think it is. 
that time is something else entirely. And even Einstein said time doesn't really exist. But, you know, so I came up with the idea that what it really is, is is just computation going amongst this graph of possibilities. That's kind of how I think of it, too, is like there's this big cube broken up into like, I don't know how many tiny little cubes. And each of those tiny cubes is a mathematical probability. And whatever we focus on is a probability that we're going to see creating our own reality. And all the other probabilities are still there at all at the same time. But, you know, because I'm focusing over here, that's what I'm seeing when somebody else might be focusing over there and seeing that probability. Yeah. And so is it possible that we're seeing different, different possibilities? Yeah. And, you know, that's, you know, I like to think of it almost as we are navigating through this graph, you know, mm-hmm. rather than so much we are creating this reality. We are like, it's almost like the different realities. Yeah, exist. yeah, it's like a big math equation and we just decide like what number we're going to be plugging into it sends us in a certain direction. Right. Towards, yep. a, towards an outcome. Yep. If there's an outcome. I mean, I don't know if it just goes on and on and on or if it ever ends. I have to take a short break. Is that okay? Yeah, it's fine. So with the idea of probabilities, what is the probability you think that this is a simulation? Well, you know, that's a, a good question. And, of course, nobody has, you know, the, the, the answer <laughs> to that exactly. And so for me, you know, it gets back to how I got involved in this uh, simulation thing in the first place was because you know, my background as a video game designer and an investor in Silicon Valley and a few years ago, actually about five years ago now, or six years ago, it was 2016, I, I was visiting a startup uh, in Marin County across the bay from San Francisco, and they had built a virtual reality ping pong game. And so I had the headset on, and I was playing this ping pong game. And it felt very realistic. Like, the mm-hmm. responsiveness was pretty good. It was as if I was hitting a real ball. And it was so realistic that at the end of the game, I, I tried to put the paddle down on the table and I tried to lean on the table. And of course, there was no table. So the paddle fell to the floor and I almost fell over. And so that got me thinking about, okay, how uh, how long would it take us to build something like the Matrix? Uh, our own simulations that were indistinguishable from physical reality. And so that's a point that I call the simulation point. And so I laid out 10 stages mm-hmm. of what I think will, will, it'll take for us to get there. And so, you know, my estimate is we'll probably get to those stages, certainly within 100 to 200 years, right? Maybe even sooner than that with uh, people building the metaverse uh, these days yeah. uh, and Facebook changing its name to Meta. And so uh, the argument that I found when I looked out there was from a, a, a philosophy professor at Oxford named Nick Bostrom that if anyone ever gets to that point, then they're likely to create lots and lots of simulations. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, if they do, there are going to be more simulated worlds than physical worlds. There's only one base reality in that in this particular model. And there's, let's say, a billion simulated worlds, each with billions of beings within them. And so, which are you more likely to be? And so there was a you know, there was a statistical argument that he said, if anyone ever reaches there, then you're most likely in a simulation. Uh, now, he had three possibilities. 
civilization never reaches that point because right. they blow themselves up. Two, they reach that point and they outlaw these types of simulations so you can't have them. Or three, they get to that. And so he put the probability about 20%. You know, Elon Musk used the same math and the same, uh, same logic that I kind of did, which is look at our video games and look how they're getting better and better. And so imagine a thousand years from now, how good our video games would be. But I mean, even a hundred years from now, they'll be way more realistic. Than yeah. Now, even 20 years from now, that's the case. Yeah. We'll have a hollow deck so, by then. <laughs> What's that? We'll have the hollow deck by then. Yeah. We'll have the hollow deck by then. Exactly. Yeah. From Star Trek. And so he put it as the odds that we're in base reality, the odds that we're not in a simulation are one in billions, right? So he's talking about that possibility. And so, you know, I tend to come, closer to that which is that i think we'll reach that point you know pretty soon mm -hmm. and i think it's almost inevitable uh and so if it's inevitable we're going to reach there it's very likely somebody already has um and so it's very possible that you and i i mean first of all you and i are not really talking to each other right, right. <laughs> we're talking to each other via a simulation of sorts right yeah. i'm talking to my computer the bits are being transferred over the wire uh, to your computer uh, there's probably some wireless stuff going on with headphones and things too <laughs> along the way. Uh, and so, you know, already we're interacting with people virtually as if we were in the same room. And so I think it's more than 50% likely that we're in some type of simulation. Um, now I base that not just on kind of this philosophical or statistical argument, but based on where we, our technology is likely to go. And also because of the evidence, you know, from paranormal and from religious from various religions, all of whom have been telling us all along that this is not uh, a real world, physical world. And, you know, I, I tend, unlike most scientists, I tend to say, well, let's just talk to people that have been outside the simulation, <laughs> right? And, mm -hmm. you know, you talk to people who've had near-death experiences. And, you know, one of the people that, that, that I spent a lot of time with was a guy named Damien Brinkley. And he wrote a book called Saved by the Light back in the 90s. He was struck by lightning and he had a near-death experience. He had kind of a classic near-death experience, right? Which had all these different elements of floating above his body, seeing a being of light. But the thing that really struck me was what he called the holographic panoramic life view, where he said he had to relive every single moment in like full detail of his life, but he had to view it from other people's perspective, right? So, and, and he had been kind of a bully when he was young because he was big and he beat people up. And he was in the military and he used to actually shoot people. He said he had to actually experience what it was like to be shot. And, you know, he's not the only one reporting life reviews. There's a certain percentage of uh -huh. NDEers report those. And so my question as a computer scientist is, well, if you're going to play it back, you've got to record it somewhere, right? Um, and, and so, you know, I, I look today at video games we record our full 3D video games and then we replay them. Mm -hmm. Right. My nephews like to watch, you know, one of the youngest ones he used to say to his, to my brother, his father, well, I want to watch the one where that girl and that guy are playing Star Wars. Right. So they're not, he's not actually watching Star Wars. He's not actually playing the Star Wars game. Uh -huh. He's watching a recording of people playing the video game. Right. And, and that's become common with Twitch and streaming now. And so we've gotten to the point where we can record our video games. Um, we can't necessarily experience them from, uh, you know, every point of view, but turns out we can. There's something called a virtual camera. And if you record the game right, you can change the virtual camera. So you can literally see in a game like CSGO, which is Counter-Strike Global Offensive, it's like a, a first-person shooter, mm -hmm. you can actually see what it was like to be shot by yourself. Um, only visually, of course, you can't feel it, but but that's because that's where our games are today. So, so I think we're more likely to get there. 
I think the religions have been telling us this for a while. So I think we're we're most likely in some kind of simulation. Okay. So does that mean that we are artificial intelligence or we are the result of artificial intelligence reaching the simulation point? It could be, but you know, there's uh, I like to point out that there's uh, two different flavors of the simulation hypothesis. And one is what I call the NPC version where everyone is a non-player character. That's the term we use in video games for the AIs that kind of wander around, you know, mm -hmm. the bartender at the bar, the people that are not players. Uh, and then there's the RPG version where it's more like us. We exist outside the game and we are playing a character that's inside the game. Right? So we have an avatar inside the game. And so that's what the Matrix was like, mostly, right? If you yeah. think of the Matrix, Neo, Morpheus, who was named after the Greek god of dreams, they all had this interface, uh, what we would call a brain-computer interface today, this wire plugged in the back of their head. And they were inside the simulation, and they had a character that kind of looked like them, actually looked exactly like them in that case. Uh, their avatar was uh, what I call identomorphic. It looked just like them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, when many academics talk about the simulation, they're talking about the NPC version, uh, including Bostrom from, from Oxford. Uh, but others, I think when most people talk about being in the simulation, we talk about thinking we're playing a game with a virtual reality headset on, right? Which is the RPG version, uh, which is that we're playing in character. So, so I tend to lean towards that side that we actually exist outside the simulation, uh, in some capacity and we are the players in this game, right? And so that doesn't mean there aren't NPCs wandering around, but, but I, I tend to take the view that, you know, that's closer, I think, to the religious idea that we exist outside the physical and we're having an experience here in, in the physical. Hmm. Do you think it's possible that we're, you know, if we're in this simulation and it's a shared experience by all of us, and you've kind of talked a little bit about this in your book, um, let's say, um, and I'll use this, the example of like when Donald Trump got elected, you know, like, like I know for a lot of us too, and I, for me, it's like I grew up in one world. And now it seems like I'm in a different world. And, and, and it seems to have switched around that time of when Donald Trump got elected. Is it possible that the simulation may have froze or gotten stuck or something like that, rebooted and came back into this? <laughs> well, you know, depending on which side of the aisle you're on, you might <laughs> take a different view. Well, I'm not on any side of the aisle, but, you know, it's just the, the, the yeah. world seems a bit different now. Like, like people does, seem different, it, right? values seem different. Um, even some of the physical things in our world seem a bit different. Well, that's, you know, where I think my take on the whole Mandela effect mm -hmm. is that it's not just that it happened one time, but that it happens often. And that we happen to be on the branch, let's say, in 2016 when Donald Trump got elected. And then there was another branch that was tried out where Hillary Clinton got elected. And who's to say that this is the one that will persist, right? Uh, perhaps this branch will run for a period of time. And then it'll stop running. And then we'll go back to the other one. We may not know that that has even happened, <laughs> So, ha so what happens case. to us if that happens? If we go, well, if you and I are in the Trump um, um, scenario, and yeah. someone says, "You know what? We got to cancel this one out." Will we pop back into a, the Hillary Clinton scenario, and then remember like the Donald Trump thing as like a part of the Mandela effect? That's what I think would happen, you know. And so it gets back to this idea: if you are a player, 
right, experiencing this. Like what happens with a computer system is a computer process can pause. Like, for example, you know, all of our current computers are pretty much multi-threaded systems. We can have one window open in the foreground. We have a bunch of windows like the web browsers in the background. Right? Mm-hmm. And so the way the, the, the computer works is it'll run one instruction at a time for each program. But the one that's in the foreground, it'll run many more. So like I'm talking to you, so Zoom is running you know, maybe 100 mm-hmm. instructions or 1,000 instructions per second. But in the background, I've got you know some browser windows open that I'm not really using. They just happen to be open. They're running maybe two or three instructions a second because they're not in the foreground. And so the computer optimizes by stuff. But it doesn't know. Like As soon as I click on the the web window, it, it just picks right up where it left off. Like It doesn't know that this much time has passed, uh, this many instructions have passed in Zoom versus this, right? It just knows it's just going to keep continuing running the program that it was running. And it's just only two or three steps forward. And so, you know, this is an interesting explanation for time dilation, you know, when you're moving fast at the speed of light. But it also could tie to these multiple timelines where, you know, this happens to be the one, the the branch of the multiverse that we're in. It does feel a little bit different, right? Uh, but it could also be that, you know, the simulators are deciding to shake things up <laughs> on this path to test out things. Uh, there was an MIT professor you know, a physics professor named Max Tegmark, who when he was asked about this, said, well, you know, the the one thing that he would do is make sure you live an interesting life so that the simulators don't shut you down. <laughs> and so it's very possible that, you know, the, the, the more tumultuous ones are the more interesting ones from the point of view of whoever's running the simulation because you may want to see what, what might happen. So this could be a stress test simulation. Very let's, much. Let, so, let, right? Let's see how stress we, how much stress we can put on this particular reality or simu- simulation until it actually breaks. Like, how far can we push this computer? How far can we turn that knob until the thing blows up? Yeah, and it gets to difficulty level, right? If you think of video games, there, there are different. You can set things at different difficulty levels, right? And so perhaps we've just been set into one that was the most difficult. And perhaps that was the most interesting, right? For whatever they're trying to achieve, which is, and whatever we are trying to achieve. Because people say, well, who's outside the simulation? Is it aliens? Is it future versions of us? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, some people say it's an ancestor simulation, which means like if we ran a video game like Civilization of ancient Rome, right? We would be, uh, Simulating our, our ancestors. Right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's a form of time travel in a way if you can make the simulation really realistic. Uh, some people say it's, you know, conscious entities. Some people say it's God. It's God and Satan. Um, so depending on your view of what's outside simulation, the, the point of, you know, what, uh, which branches are most interesting takes on a whole new meaning. I tend to think it's us. Right? We are outside the simulation. So we're agreeing to play these particular roles in this particular... We each have our own little storylines, but they intersect in many ways, and that that changes things. Um, There's a term called computational irreducibility, which was coined by a gentleman named Stephen Wolfram, uh, who's well-known in the scientific world. He's a physicist who became a computer science guy and wrote a program called Mathematica. And he says that things that are computationally irreducible means you can't just calculate what's going to happen quickly at step one million. You have to get to step 999999 
to figure out what's going to happen at step 1 million. Well, to get there, you have to go to step 998. To get there, you have to go to step 997. And that's like a computer program. Right? Mm-hmm. You have to run the simulation through these steps. And if you add free will, then you've got a chaotic computationally irreducible process. <laughs> right? You don't know what's going to happen because people can make different choices. And so there's this wide graph of possibilities. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that would be sort of my general take on, on, on that. But I do think you're right. We're in kind of a, a weirder simulation. That said, you know, people who lived in the 1960s to the Cuban Missile Crisis, I mean, they, you know, that was just before, that was before I was born, but that mm-hmm. would have been a stranger, in some ways, even stranger <laughs> place to be, you know, than, than where we are today. And who knows? Some people believe that that went down its, to its logical conclusion. <laughs> and we just happen to be on the one where, on the path where that was avoided at that point. Hmm. Interesting. If the in the, in, the, in the ancestral model, so that means there's a version of me in the future playing this version of, you know, controlling this version of me. If this version of me dies, do I go back to being my original ancestral version? Well, that would be the case in the RPG version. Right, because right? if I'm, I'm playing the character. Maybe you would essentially take off the, the headset and you would say, okay, it's kind of like, a, I don't know if you've ever seen the Rick and Morty mm-hmm. uh, show, but there was an episode where, you know, it was a virtual reality simulation of a life and he was in there and he was living the whole life. Like he grew old, he was married, he had kids, and, you know, he fell off something, some changing a light bulb and he died and he takes off his glasses and you're like, whoa, what's going on? Where's my wife? Where's my kids? You know, it was only 15 minutes at best in the outside world. Mm-hmm. But to him, it seemed like a whole lifetime had passed. So that, that would be, I think, in the RPG version, you know, what would happen is we would be outside the simulation. Hmm. So, in so, the NPC version, which is closer to what the materialists say, mm-hmm. you know, it would just shut down, but then we would run again uh, to do something else. And, and if, if in what I talk about in simulated multiverses, if we had stored some of that memory so that we could restart it at any point, we could rerun from any point what, what had happened. And so there's memory overlap, and that's kind of a way a glitch, a computer programming glitch could explain um, the Mandela effect. When you were talking about reaching the simulation point, you know, where we are creating our own simulations, is that something that we do with technology and as a society together? Or is that a point that we reach as individuals through some type of spiritual evolution? Well, I think the way that I talk about the simulation point, it's more of a technological thing that we reach as a society, and then we are able to put on that headset. It's not necessarily a headset. At that mm-hmm. point, it would be more like the Matrix, which is a brain-computer interface um, for that point. But at the same time, I do think that there is this idea that we can spiritually wake up and realize we're in a simulation. And that's what, you know, the Buddhists have been telling right. us all along is the whole point is that, you know, Buddha literally means to awaken right, right. from the dream. Mm-hmm. And so they use the metaphor of the dream as, as a powerful one. And in some of the Tibetan traditions, they even practice dream yoga, where, you know, you are in the dream and you learn to do lucid dreaming. So you kind of wake up within the dream and you remember what it was like outside the dream and you can start to manipulate things within the dream. And and they use that as not just a metaphor, but a training to say, okay, if you can do that, you should be able to wake up inside this dream without having to take the headset off, mm-hmm. if you will, using the simulation metaphor. 
And you should be able to remember what it was like before you started this life. But you can still be here playing the game. And that's what they call enlightenment in some in some, right. some cases, right? You remember your past lives. You remember what's going on outside. You realize that all of this is an illusion. Uh, you know, the Buddha talked about that very, you know, quite a bit that, you know, these all things lack any inherent reality, like, like a dream, basically, mm-hmm. um, or like a reflection in a very clear mirror, which to me sounds a lot like pixels, right? That are right. being presented on a screen. Like, what proof is there of reality? Is there any proof that, that what we're living in is real? I mean, when you get right down to it, I mean, the physicists, in particular John Wheeler, who I talked about earlier, you know, they keep looking for this thing called matter, and they can't really find it, right? It's weird. Those Russian nested dolls. They just keep opening up the dolls, and there's another doll, and they open it up, and there's just empty space. And, you know, he came to the conclusion that even though when he was younger, everyone thought that the world consisted of solid particles, Mm -hmm. that there are no solid particles, that particles are just properties of information. And so he came up with the it from bit phrase, it from bit. So anything that's an it, like a physical object, like, you know, this computer or a glass of water is made up of bits of information. Because when you get down to the subatomic level, that's all you get for, to identify one particle versus another is just slightly different properties. And so, you know, he came to the conclusion that it was basically all information. Uh, and I think most physicists will agree with the information side of it and computation. You know, they don't necessarily agree that it's a, it's a simulation. That's kind of where I think the new crop of thinkers is saying, well, if it's information, that information has to be rendered on some computing right. device and, and we have to be experiencing it. And of course, we experience it only through, you know, our own uh, brains or minds. And, you know, as Morpheus said in that famous scene in the Matrix, when Neo asks, you know, he takes him out of the Matrix and puts him in another little Matrix. And he says, you know, uh, is this real? And Morpheus says, well, what is real? <laughs> the reality is a series of electrical signals coming into your brain. And so now we get into the philosophical discussion of idealism, which says that everything is in the mind, versus materialism, which says everything exists physically. And I, I think of the simulation as a kind of halfway point in a way because it just matters what, when, well, your definition of existing <laughs> physically. Uh, and that's why I use the term rendered world. It, it exists when it's rendered, as long as you're playing the game, as long as the computer's on, as long as the headset's on. But when you take it off, it's no longer there. Or if you change the program, then it's different at that point. So that's like so that's the observer why, effect. Yeah, it's like the observer effect. Like it's real when it gets observed, and then multiple people can experience it because there's something called coherence and decoherence between different things. Uh, there's even an experiment that this guy Eugene Wigner proposed where the part of the wave collapses one way for one group of people and differently in another group of people. And that's just really strange because it's like we're observing different different things. Because normally what happens is when somebody observes it, everybody else gets cohered to that same mm-hmm. observation. It's kind of like, okay, it gets rendered and that's what everybody sees. But if the other people haven't seen that yet and they see something else, is there a possibility of things getting out of sync, which happens with computer games sometimes where... Uh, you know, you're playing and you see one thing, you see, you know, you, you struck first and I'm on my machine, you know, we're fighting in, 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 a, in a fantasy game and I think I struck first. Then it gets out of sync and that causes a problem. So the server has to decide and reconcile what really happened first versus what we thought happened first. And then it tries to put that down and that's, that could be another reason for glitches 
and and the Mandela effect as well. <laughs> it's so strange. <laughs> oh, never going to make sense of reality. <laughs> it, it's, it's like it's impossible. You know, it's like the most basic question is like, what is this? What is this I'm experiencing? But so many people don't ask that question. We just accept that it's happening, you know. And what I like about your book and other books and, and people who have had near-death experiences or experienced paranormal or anything anomalous is it makes me question, what is this? It's, it's, it's the most fundamental question that there is. Right. The reality is not what it seems, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, simulation theory is telling us that the physical world, space, is not what it seems. And, you know, the simulated multiverse is also telling us that time is not what it seems. And so both space and time are not what they seem to us in an ordinary, everyday basis. And I think science is catching up to that. I think so, too. Slowly. But I, Slowly, I do think, yeah. you know, as more people from... Um, you know, long as it's, like, like for a long time, this was tinfoil hat stuff, you know, conspiracy theorists, aliens, you know, ghosts, hunting, hunting, and that kind of stuff was all sort of fringe. But now it seems to be taken more seriously by universities and scientific and, and probably even corporations too that are not talking about their interest in these topics. Yeah, that's right. I think it's getting out there and, you know, there's organizations like the Templeton Foundation that are trying to fund research, you know, that, that bridges this gap as well. But fundamentally, I think religion and science are asking us very similar questions, although slightly different, right? Religion mm -hmm. tries to tell us why we're here, but science is trying to tell us what is here. Uh, but I think in the end, they're both trying to get at the truth of what this reality is and eventually get to, if you know that, you can kind of try to figure out what is the purpose of being here. And I think science is slower, but you know, gets more into the the mechanics of how this world works, and and it has had great success in doing that. But you know, it's been ignoring the larger questions. Uh, but in my mind, they're just working on the rules of the simulation, or what we call the physics engine in video games. It's basically, you know, uh, that's the the term we use for how things actually work. Because some some video games you can fly. Some video games you can't. Some video games you can run super fast. Mm -hmm. Some video games you have cars and others you don't. And so, you know, you can get on the dragon. And so the physics engine matters in a game. And it's slightly different in each game. You mentioned earlier, like, you know, in order to find out the outcome of the simulation, you had to go through all the different processes to get to that particular result. Or in a multiple timeline model, those results probably already exist. Do you think that we can fast forward to a future timeline to get our answer quicker without having to run through all those different steps? Well, I think, you know, we can look at future potential events, right, in the timeline, but, you know, whether we'll actually get to this one or that one, I mean, that's where predictions, you know, sometimes predictions seem to have a power and they come true. And other times, you know, we hear these predictions of things from psychics and others that don't come true. And then they say, well, we avoided that future. Well, it's very hard to know which of those were there. So I believe we can run fast forward and say, this is what might happen if we follow this timeline. You know, and there was a, there was a great book written in the nineties called A Journey of Souls 
by Dr. Michael Newton, and he had uh, regressed through hypnosis patients to, like, not to a previous life, but to the in-between state, what the Buddhists call the bardo. Mm -hmm. And so it was about this between-life period. And he said, one of the things that happens before you incarnate, and this happened with enough people that he said he thinks this is something that happens often, is you go into sort of what looks like a technological room, and you've got this machine that can show you the possible timelines of your life, like A, B, C, and you can fast forward and you can see what is happening in, say, New York, like today, but then what happens if you take this branch versus that branch? Mm-hmm. And, and what's weird is it's like you're actually looking at what would happen. <laughs> like it's almost not like you're just looking at a simulation. Well, that's really strange, right? If, if you take that at face value. And even some people that have had near-death experiences report being able to then say, like there was this one woman, uh, uh, Natalie Sudman, and she, she wrote, she, uh, was in the, uh, in the army and, uh, she, they hit an IED and so there was an explosive explosion and she had a near death experience. And she said during that time, you know, as opposed to just seeing the past in a life review, she saw potentials, things that could happen. What happens if it, this, if her leg never recovered? What happened if she became blind? This sounds kind of, you know, uh, grotesque in a way, but she said mm-hmm. it was like she was watching it on a screen and she was just laughing about these different possibilities in the future. So I feel like we've got these different possibilities, uh, you know, in the same way that, so Schrodinger actually, you know, I talked about the cosmic, uh, delayed choice experiment, right? And multiple possible histories. Uh, Schrodinger, who was one of the fathers of uh, quantum physics, uh, he came up with a term back in the 40s called multiple simultaneous histories, right? And it's almost like you choose one of those. Similarly, there are these multiple simultaneous futures, and maybe we're choosing those. And, you know, people who have either had near-death experiences or, or pre-birth memories can kind of remember what it's like to look at different possible futures. I mean, there was another woman who saw a future where if she stayed dead or on the other side, you know, her children would be brought up by somebody else and she didn't like the outcome. And so she, she decided, like they gave her a choice in the near death experience, whether to come back or not. Yeah. And so it was almost like she could see what, what would happen. And so it's almost like if you're outside the linear time, (laughs) then it's easier to see kind of like going back to Philip K. Dick's orthogonal time. You can see, you know, where these futures are leading and perhaps you can even tweak them, but I think when we're in it, it's harder, and that's where meditation, uh, sleep, dreams puts us in a different state of mind, and perhaps detaches us a little bit from our current locked fixed position. So if you look at video games, the camera usually has a fixed position. It's mm-hmm. either first person, like okay, I'm in first person, I see my hands, but I can't see my face, um, or it's in sort of this kind of third person right above your head. Right, where you can see your avatar and then you can turn your avatar around if you want to see yeah. like, what you're wearing. Or, but you see everything from that fixed position. Well, it turns out it doesn't have to be so fixed. Like I mentioned earlier, you can set the virtual camera. Now, they don't usually let you do this in most video games, but if you know the tricks, or you're a super user or you're writing to the APIs, you can do this. You can set the virtual camera somewhere else. Some games do let you. They let you like kind of right click on the mouse and scroll around. So you can kind of like zoom around like a panoramic view kind of like the bullet <laughs> the bullet time in the matrix mm-hmm. right? where he was kind of the, the camera moved around uh the specific thing that was happening and so 
you know, with that, it's almost like if you can detach yourself from your fixed point of view, which is what it seems like all of these different spiritual practices are about, uh, less identification with your ego or your specific avatar and your specific personality, you can see these other things more clearly, I think. You know? hmm. So I have one more question before we wrap it up. It's a real easy one. What do you think consciousness is and why are we self-aware? Well, you know, that's the, the big debate <laughs> in <laughs> physics and elsewhere. And in physics, you know, you have kind of like a concrete instantiation of that debate, which is, does matter derive from consciousness? Uh, which is what Max Planck said. He thought consciousness was fundamental and matter was derivative. Or does consciousness derive from matter? Which is what today's kind of materialist paradigm and a lot of... Uh, uh, scientists think, which is that if you just got the neurons in the right physical uh, arrangement, then you get consciousness. So consciousness is an emergent property. And I think that's where uh, there's a philosopher named uh, David Chalmers, who has talked and written about simulation as well. And he, he, he broke these into the easy problem of consciousness and the hard problem of consciousness. <laughs> he said the, hard, the easy problem is what the scientists are trying to figure out, which is how do you map these neurons and do you get some kind of if you can do it right, you get something that thinks it's conscious. The hard problem is actually figuring out what the heck consciousness is, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's not at all clear what yeah, it like is. I wonder it's if, it's, if it's numbers and data. Is it energy? I mean, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, in, in my mind, using the simulation uh, metaphor, uh, you know, consciousness is the player that exists outside of the avatar, mm -hmm. right? You have NPCs who might think they're conscious, but they don't really have the same level of consciousness as the people who are outside the simulation. Uh, and that's where, you know, we kind of experience that in our dreams, we experience that for people that have out-of-body experiences or, or other spiritual experiences. And so, you know, I tend to lean towards that model that consciousness is something that exists outside the physical body, uh, and, you know, the yogis have, you know, all these uh, techniques, like I mentioned, dream yoga yeah. is one of the, the six yogas of Naropa. And it turns out, uh, which was, who was a, a, a Buddhist master in like mm -hmm. the 12th century, I think in Kashmir, uh, and a lot of the Tibetan traditions, you know, they would travel over the Himalayas and they met him. One guy would travel back. His name was Marpa, the translator, and he would translate all this stuff into Tibetan. And we only have a lot of it because they translated it into Tibetan. A lot of that was lost in India. And they were, turns out there was a secret seventh yoga of forceful projection where you could project your consciousness out into another uh, physical entity. So there was the story of the pigeon saint. And it was, I think, Marpa's son who was falling off his horse and was about to die, but he knew this technique. So he projected his consciousness out of his body to a pigeon that was flying nearby. Mm -hmm. His physical body died. Uh, but then the, as a pigeon, he flew to somewhere in India and he found a recently deceased person whose body was still actually technically in, in good shape. And he was able to inhabit that body, a young man's body. And then he basically taught for the next 60 years. And uh, people in Tibet would send, you know, people who wanted to know about this technique to him to go see the pigeon saint in India on the other side of the Himalayas <laughs> because he's the expert. He did it when he died. Which sounds again like a little bit of a gruesome story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> of like corpses, but it, it's interesting that that they, you know, they they have incidents where they believe this has happened, and so so I tend to be of the opinion that consciousness is something that gets lodged to the body while we have our our headset on. We can 
transform our avatar or, or jump into other avatars if necessary in certain situations. Uh, but that's, you know, again, my personal opinion. Right. <laughs> right? Well, well, you don't know yet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's great stuff to think about. I mean, it really makes me think and it makes you question reality and gives me new perspectives. And I love doing that. I love being able to play with the perspective. Yeah, me too. That that's what makes all of this a lot of fun, I think, you know. Yeah. So um before we wrap it up, where's the best place for my listeners to find you and find your book? Sure. So, Books. you know, my <laughs> website is zenentrepreneur.com and uh from there they can um uh, link to you know the book a lot of my writings i even have a podcast although i haven't done any episodes in a while called the simulated universe mm-hmm. uh and uh, of course the books are available on amazon and you know most local bookstores can either order them or they, some of them might have them depending on, on where they live uh, and so i always encourage people to support local bookstores and you know if possible obviously you can just order it on amazon but uh, perhaps go and request it at your local bookstore <laughs> Well, I definitely recommend the book. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It definitely, uh, like I said earlier when I opened the episode, it definitely will tie your brain into like a knot. <laughs> and then I'll probably spend the rest of my life trying to unravel it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great way to express it, I think. <laughs> uh, thanks for being on. This is a great interview. I'd uh, love to have you back again. And uh, just hang on for one moment, and I'm going to play the outro. Sounds great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon and it will change your life. Remember, everything that it says was first imagined. If you loved what you listened to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Cochulio.